Hi Subterraneans listeners. This episode is the second of a two-part series, and it picks up directly from where the last episode left off. If you haven't already done so, please go back and check out part one first, since this won't make a lot of sense in isolation. As always, if you want to support my work, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash subterpod, where I'm currently doing a series about the music of Subterraneans for £5 and over subscribers. Now, on with the show. quick recap. A 200-pound mass rock is held in a security vault beneath the shard by Mansell Wheeler, the art collector nephew of a former Subterraneans Guild livery master. The vault is protected by several tons of concrete, police checkpoints, and his own private security force, since it also contains a ton of cash from Wheeler's money laundering side business. On top of all that, the vault is suspended on vibration-sensitive pistons, and the rock itself is GPS tagged in case it somehow managed to get out. On the other side of the law are the Returners, a crew dedicated to stealing stolen artefacts back for their original owners, as well as taking a little bit of money for their trouble, you know? They're led by Irish Pete, a committed Republican with the bearing and accent of a 40s RAF pilot, along with Draco, a hacker, the Eugenes, a trio of practical lads who aren't afraid to get their hands dirty, Sally, an aging metalhead with a talent for deception, and my friend Kay, who knows the hidden routes around the city like the back of her hand. It all started with a phone call. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. Sally, posing as an art dealer, called Mansell on his private phone number, helpfully provided by Draco, to offer him what he thought was a steal on the work of an up-and-coming young artist in East London. The work itself was a complete fraud, put together by the Eugenes, but that didn't really matter. Wheeler always approached art as an investment first and foremost. They set up a small gallery show in a warehouse space and flogged him an 8x10 canvas smeared with gravel and red paint, by the up-and-coming student artist Eugene Innsmouth, whose graduation show at Goldsmiths had attracted considerable interest from across the art world. Sally provided testimonials from a wide variety of art critics in her wide variety of voices, including what sounded like a clip of him being interviewed live on Radio 2. Now they had Mansell on the hook. A scant few months after he'd made the initial purchase, Sally told him that a buyer was in town, ready to pick up the Innsmouth piece for 30 times what Wheeler had initially paid for it. He took a little convincing, but eventually, Wheeler agreed to take the buyer down into his vault to see the piece in person. Then, a little hiccup. Nothing the returners couldn't overcome. Sally was supposed to go in with Irish Pete, posing as the buyer, to get down to the vault together. This was a two-person job. 
The mass rock was heavy, after all. Sally had spent two months growing her hair out to cover her scalp tattoo, a rabbit with a knife in its mouth on one side and a series of occult sigils on the other, and had bought a suit for the occasion. Then, Wheeler, ever paranoid, told her that he wanted to meet the client alone. The Eugenes had to hurry to think up a plan, but they worked quick, rigging up a loose, exoskeleton-type system of harnesses that Pete could wear under his clothes, so as to allow him to distribute weight evenly while carrying it. It was a little cumbersome, and the padding around it made Pete sweat like a vicar at closing time, but he could wear it. The plan was back on. On a balmy summer's evening in June, Irish Pete walked into the Shard, dressed to the nines in his best eccentric art dealer outfit. His plummy accent and his sharp tailoring breezed him past security, where he met Wheeler in the reception area, who, ever the businessman, wasted no time in telling him that he was loath to part with the piece, but might consider it for 30% more than the original offer. He continued to inflate the importance of this incredible generational talent right the way down the stairs and through the two further security checkpoints, barely stopping to let Pete get a word in edgewise. This was a small mercy for Pete, since it was a little difficult for him to walk with the harness on. One of the clips kept catching on his trouser leg, pulling it down slightly as he walked and forcing him to keep hoiking his waist back up like a child wearing his dad's suit. He was desperately aware as they walked through the third set of metal detectors that the carbon fibre might not set off any alarms, but if the guards gave him so much as a cursory pat down, he'd be busted immediately. Nonetheless, he somehow managed to get down to the vault in one piece, while Wheeler droned on about price fluctuations and the art market and the sheer value of our shared culture and so on and so forth. Pete watched as Wheeler blithely tapped in the eight-digit code to unlock the door, and then, as it swung open, he saw it. The dull grey centrepiece somehow glowing even against the brushed metal interior of the vault. The mass rock. The thing he came here to get. And then... Everything went to hell. Mansell Wheeler has many faults, but he isn't a stupid man. Venal, and petty, and racist, yes, but easily deceived? No. He'd been suspicious since Sally's first approach, but decided to go ahead with the initial purchase as a test. Worst case scenario, he'd be out a few grand in an afternoon, and best case, it was all legit, and he'd make the money back a dozen times over. Greed won the day, but after he got the piece of art independently checked out, they confirmed that nobody by the name Eugene Innsmouth had attended Goldsmiths College. Wheeler was furious. He suspected the returners were after his stone, and he wanted to make an example of them. Sally had been picked up earlier that day, based on phone records, and stuffed in the back of a van as she walked to the offie for a six-pack. From the moment Irish Pete stepped inside the shard, he was shadowed by members of Wheeler's security team. 
Whelan knew that catching them alone wasn't the real prize. He wanted to lure out the rest of the team and bring the whole operation crashing down all at once. He knew that the best way to do that would be to bring Pete down to the basement and lock him away, out of radio contact, forcing the others to show their hand. Irish Pete was ambushed from behind at the doorway to the vault, a bag roughly pulled over his head and his hands cuffed behind his back, before being dragged 40 feet down the corridor into their scruffy maintenance room, which reeked of spilled booze and stale cigarette smoke. He was braced for the blows before they started, but that didn't make them hurt any less. After a few minutes of muffled thumps, the hood was pulled back to reveal Wheeler standing before him, panting and sweating, his knuckles red raw. Talk, you Irish son of a bitch. Pete splat blood out the side of his mouth. Irish? Yes, Irish. Didn't you think we'd be able to spot the massive harness on one of the scans as you came in? And even if that weren't clearly visible, I found these in your pocket. Wheeler held up a pack of cigarettes. This packaging, the health warnings are in the wrong goddamn language. Absolutely sloppy work right across the board. Although I suppose I shouldn't expect much more from you lot. Pete let out a sigh. Fine. I suppose you've caught me then, old chap. Any chance I'll be able to talk my way out of this one? None at all. And this room is insulated against phone signals, so there's no way for you to signal to your comrades, he spat the word, your comrades, that you're in trouble. You might as well tell me everything. Then at least I won't have to have them shot when they burst in the door after you. Panic crept into the edge of Pete's voice, but he suppressed it. Well, I shouldn't want something like that. If we're going back to the big house, though, I should prefer to do it on my own terms. I'll tell you everything. You better. Would you begrudge a fellow a cigarette first, though? They never have my brand inside, and I'd be terribly appreciative to enjoy the last ones I have as a free man. Wheeler barked out a sharp little laugh. The nerve of these kids. Ha! <laughs> Sure. He threw the pack at Pete and gestured to one of the security guards in the room to uncuff him. Don't get smart, though. Pete shakily lifted a cigarette to his mouth, cocking it slightly to avoid the spot where they'd split his lip. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a cheap little lighter, and then, in one swift motion, raised it up towards the tip of his cigarette. Wait, no, Wheeler sputtered out, and Pete felt the barrel of a gun abruptly pushed against the back of his head. Drop the lighter, came the gruff voice of a security guard behind him. Now. He did as he was told, and then, as instructed, kicked it across the room. Wheeler picked it up and turned it over in his hands. Some type of gimmick? A bomb, maybe? Nothing so interesting, I'm afraid, Pete chimed in. That one's just a lighter. Well, we have to be sure, snapped Wheeler, impatiently. You, light that for him, with your own lighter, please. Pete took a deep, full drag, trying to ignore the sting of smoke against an open wound. Then he exhaled. Then, the fire alarm went off. And with it, a ton of quick-drying foam completely surrounded the vault, encasing it immediately and preventing any access from the normal entryway. Just as planned. 
While Irish Pete was awkwardly shuffling through the lobby, watched at a safe distance by Wheeler's security detail, Draco had used the internal maintenance system to dispatch an engineer to go fix the smoke alarm. Meanwhile, the Eugenes were underground in the labyrinthine network of tunnels surrounding London Bridge tube station. They'd been down there for a week already, setting up a little base camp in a long-forgotten access room, bickering with each other over who got to sit in front of the little vitamin D lamp they'd brought with them while the other two shuffled dirt. Remember when I said that the vault was built in a structurally insignificant pocket of the foundation? This meant that instead of seven feet of concrete sitting between the bottom of the vault and the dirt underneath, it was more like six inches. Still a lot to get through, but once you've dug all the dirt out and set up a series of six high-powered drills, it shouldn't take you more than, oh, 48 seconds at eight seconds per inch. And 48 seconds was no time at all once they knew the vibration-sensitive panels were locked in place by the quick-drying fire safety foam. They drilled through the concrete floor and started a diamond-bladed circular saw running on the steel bottom of the vault before Pete's cigarette had gone out. Outside the vault, it was all panic and brimstone. The moment the alarms went off and he stepped into the hallway, Wheeler's phone started going haywire with alerts. The mass rock was on the move. The GPS tracker showed it moving at speed out of the building and straight across the street, heading west. He sprinted out, screaming at his guards to follow. Puffing his way into the Met Police checkpoint, he breathily demanded they dispatch a unit to the GPS location on his phone. But they were too slow. Kay had sprinted clean up the side of St Guy's Hospital, her heavy backpack barely slowing her down, fitted as it was with a much better version of the stupid, obvious harness that Irish Pete was wearing. She was hopping from rooftop to rooftop, causing the GPS to swing wildly back and forth between multiple streets in the area. By the time they got the police helicopter in the air, with Mansell Wheeler strapped angrily in the back, she was already a mile across Southwark, the little dot of the GPS stuttering her location as she quickly scaled buildings and descended into tunnels beneath the street. She checked her watch as she skidded towards Hungerford Bridge, 16.49. Almost perfect. A train would pull into Charing Cross in 30 seconds, and she could disappear into the crowd without a trace. She leapt and swung across the abutments next to the platform, startling the tourists on the footbridge, as the carriage pulled up next to her. 10 seconds. She could hear sirens in the distance, feel her heart pounding in her ears, nearly blocking out the hum of the helicopter directly overhead. Five seconds. As she reached the three-quarter point, she saw two cops pushing their way past tourists on the bridge to try to reach her. Three seconds. Two seconds. One second. Now. She hit the quick release button on her harness as she made the final jump through the scaffolding into the station. The bag dropped hard towards the river, and Wheeler screamed from inside the helicopter, hovering dangerously close overhead. For a moment... Everything was suspended in time. Then, instead of a splash, a splat. The bag hit the roof of a passing tourist clipper. As it did so, it burst open, spreading a payload of non-toxic paint thinner all over the roof, which quickly stripped away the thin top layer of acrylic to reveal a message they'd sprayed underneath the night before. Mansell Wheeler, thief, coward, love, 
The Returners. Cutting through concrete takes less than a minute with the right tools. Cutting through the bottom of a steel vault though, it's going to take a little longer. The Eugenes needed about 15 minutes of uninterrupted drilling to get into the vault proper from the moment the fire alarm went off and locked the vibration sensors in place. They knew that the only way to get to the mass rock and the huge stack of unmarked bills would be to get Wheeler and his security to think they'd already left. The mass rock was never in the bag carried by Kay. In fact, she was never underground at all. She had a five minute head start from her vantage point outside the lobby, reprogrammed GPS tracker attached to the fake backpack she had slung loosely over her shoulder. The canvas the Eugenes had sold to Wheeler wasn't just gravel and red paint, you see. It also had a tiny computer chip in it, designed to monitor and intercept the signal between Mansell's mobile phone and the GPS trackers in the vault. Once they had the signal locked in, Draco was able to clone the GPS chip attached to the mass rock and redirect it to the one in Kay's backpack. She could then disappear into the tunnels and across the rooftops, leading Wheeler, his security and the police on a wild goose chase, buying the Eugenes just enough time to empty the vault, remove the GPS tags with a hefty set of bolt cutters, and extract Irish Pete from right under their noses. By the time Mansell Wheeler had figured out what had gone wrong, and scrambled back to the vault. There was nothing for him, except a hole in the floor and a cigarette butt, still gently smouldering in the maintenance room. It was... flawless. And the best thing of all? There was nothing he could do about it. The returners disappeared into the night after splitting the loot, each of them anonymous, and now rich enough to get out of the country and lay low for a few years. Sally was in the room next to Irish Pete the whole time, and she got out the same way Pete did. Pete took the mass rock back to his hometown, where it now enjoys pride of place in that most traditional site of communion, the local pub. Everyone went on with their lives, with enough money between them to never work again with a little careful investing. All except Kay. She was never really in it for the money. And she had no idea what to do with it when she got it. She told me this story from a perch at the top of another London skyscraper, where she set up a little home for herself in a quiet storage room. It was a beautiful sunny afternoon in late May, just under a year since she walked out of Charing Cross Station with her hood up and disappeared into a waiting cab. Some of the cash went to bailing out friends of hers... Some went to a community centre in East London. Some went on cocktail bars and big dinners, because she's only human after all. I never really set out to make money or change the world, she said, gazing down at the street below. It's just... The more I think about it, there's nothing I hate more than a locked door. Then, she slung the messenger bag off her shoulder, leant over the edge and dumped £20,000 in loose cash into the headwind over London's streets.
next episode of Subterraneans, Ratboat, and the ephemera of the city. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app. You can also subscribe on Patreon, where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran and Alex. Let's get obnoxious with it. I want to know what brave is. I'm tired of sitting here pretending I'm not fucking dangerous. Thanks for listening. Thank you.